Hello, my name is Mallory Jenna Robinson. Join me on A Hateful Homicide, a true crime podcast dedicated to telling the stories regarding the murders of transgender, gender non-binary, and gender diverse community members in the United States and abroad. This is A Hateful Homicide. 911, what's your emergency? Yeah. transgender woman has been shot and killed in North Baltimore, Alpha. In the U.S., trans women of color have a life expectancy of just 35 years. This happens on a daily. Another one of my friends got killed right up the street from here. These cases are true. The victims are real and their voices matter. This is A Hateful Homicide. The murder of Nia Henderson, Thursday, July 17th, 2014, Baltimore, Maryland. And to Baltimore City now, where police are investigating the second unsolved murder of a transgender woman in the past month. The latest victim was found this morning in northwest Baltimore, and we've learned her half-brother plays for the Los Angeles Clippers. 11 News reporter George Levis is live downtown at police headquarters. He has the latest. George. Well, Donna, detectives say they're trying to figure out if these murders are connected and if they are hate crimes. Either way, the transgender community is getting very concerned. As city officers were serving a warrant this morning on the 3400 block of Piedmont Avenue in northwest Baltimore, they happened upon a body in an alley. Detectives later learned it was that of a 26-year-old transgender woman whose legal name is Kevin Long, but who went by Mia Henderson. NBA player Reggie Bullock is her half-brother. The LA Clippers player ended a tweet today with, Gone but not forgotten, RIP Kevin. It's the second unsolved murder of a transgender woman in the city in a month. Are you concerned that your community is being targeted? I'm sure our community is being targeted. That's not even new. On June 4th, the body of 40-year-old Ricky Hall, or Candy, was found stabbed in a field near Coldstream Park Elementary Middle School in Northeast Baltimore. Police would only say this morning's victim, Mia Henderson, had severe trauma to the body. And in a news conference this afternoon, Todd Brass said it did not have a motive and made no definitive connection between the two cases. We're going back several years to look at other cases that may have similarities to this case, including the one that happened about a month ago in the northeast part of the city. So far, police say the only similarity is that both victims were transgender. Baltimore's LGBT community worries there's more to this story. Yes, that there's serial murder. Yes. Targeting this community. Yes, the transgender community. That's what it's almost beginning to sound like. Mary Cherico counsels people in Baltimore's transgender community. She says she hears about other serious crimes that the public often does not. There's assaults and murders or sex crimes. Yes, there's a lot of them. I mean, we hear a lot of talk here, and I think they're sincere, but not enough is really being done. We are listening, that we're paying attention. We're responding, and we take this very seriously. 
And according to family, Mia Henderson was from North Carolina, but she had been living in Baltimore with relatives. They say she was a sweet person, and that's why they have no idea why someone would want to kill her. It's just 5.30 a.m. on Thursday, July 17, 2014 in Baltimore, Maryland. Just two weeks after 4th of July, when a pedestrian in the alleyway off of Garrison Boulevard in the northern west part of Baltimore, Maryland, located the body of 26-year-old African-American transgender female Mia Henderson. Detectives are called and the Baltimore Police Department arrives on the scene. Crime tape is placed around the Garrison Boulevard alleyway. And there you can see the blood-soaked body of 26-year-old Mia Henderson. Individuals who are looking around and the detectives and the crime scene analysts are all trying to figure out what happened to Mia. They realize that this isn't quite where Mia was murdered. Though this is where her body was found, they were able to go and pull surveillance footage. And that footage would then show that Mia was in a hotel prior to being dumped and disposed in the alleyway off of Garrison Boulevard. So, what exactly happened to Mia? In this case today, we're going to discuss the victimology of Mia Henderson, her impact and her love that not only did she have in North Carolina, but also in Baltimore. We're going to discuss often so many times that we've seen throughout this series, the hate crimes and homicides of transgender individuals, especially by those who knows their gender identity. We're also going to talk about how in this time period, there was a growing suspicion and fear of a serial killer in Baltimore, Maryland. So let's get into the case and take a look into the murder of Mia Henderson. As we take a look into this case, I want you to understand a little bit about what happened to Mia. She was going, like so many others, had moved from North Carolina for a fresh start. Mia wanted the opportunity to live in a liberal and safe environment out of her southern roots in North Carolina. Being only in Baltimore for a little over a year, Mia had decided to stay with an aunt and some cousins and had really wanted to get her life in order in a way that she could be the most productive person possible. So what happened to Mia in the early morning hours of Thursday, July 17th, 2014? The Baltimore Police Department began to do a detailed search. As they were looking into the victimology and trying to identify the victim, they stumbled upon the ID and the wallet of Mia Henderson. That name 
was not on the ID. However, they were able to do a search and determine not only was Mia from North Carolina, but she was also the sister of NBA player Reggie Bullock. The Baltimore Police Department knows that they have to make the tough conversations. They're going to have to have the tough conversations with the Henderson and Bullock family. They reach out to Reggie, his mother, and the rest of Mia's family to let them know that Mia has been found stabbed over five times in the back alley in Northwest Baltimore. So... As we take a look into this case, we have to understand exactly who was Mia and how did it lead to her murder on July 17th, 2014. As the Baltimore police detectives continued to investigate, they wanted to track Mia's last 24 hours. So they decided to talk to some of her closest friends During this time of Mia's stay in Baltimore, she had, you know, began to work, um, doing a little bit of hair, doing a little bit of cosmetology. Um, She was also really big on social and reformative justice. And so she was really big on making sure that she too advocated for her community. And so during this time while she's working, she had just had an appointment prior to, um, to her murder. The last time she had been seen was on July 16th. So between the afternoon of July 16th, that Wednesday, and the early morning hours of that Thursday, July 17th, Mia's body was found off of Garrison Boulevard. So as detectives began to search Mia's cell phone, They're searching CCTV footage. They're tracking Mia's last steps. And they discovered that she had hung out with an individual, an unidentified black cisgendered male. He appeared to be in his early 30s to early 40s. The CCTV footage was quite grainy. So they had to make sure that they really searched into this. And as detectives are doing this search into Mia's killer, who committed this hateful homicide against this beautiful 26-year-old Black trans woman, the community is responding. Activists like Monica Yorkman and Mary Chiro, all of these individuals, even another trans individual, they all gathered and rallied on July 18th, that Friday, to talk about the trauma and the impact. And Michelle Moore says, when other folks are killed, you know all about it. But where are the flowers? Where are the candles and cuddly toys for Mia? Where are the leaflets asking people to come forward with information? There is none of that, according to The Guardian. As you can see, the community, the fear, just six weeks prior to the murder of Mia Henderson, 40-year-old Black trans woman Candy Hall was found shot to death near an elementary school. 
the Baltimore, Maryland LGBT community at this time was in fear, fear of there being a serial killer. When Mia's murder happened in July of 2014, the investigation lasted up until the following year in 2015. It was only the Thursday, August 6th, 2015, when a suspect was finally identified for the murder and indicted in the murder of Mia Henderson. This individual identified as 46-year-old cisgendered man, Sean Oliver. Sean, a Maryland transplant. Um, he was a dad. He had been in an on and off again relationship, not with Mia, but with other um, women, serious relationships here and there. But he had a relationship with Mia Henderson. But what was the extent of that relationship? Baltimore police detectives wanted to know. Lead detective Anthony Batts questioned Sean Oliver in the Baltimore police detective investigation room. Sean has a seat. He pulls Sean in closer, looks him into the eyes and asks him what happened between the early morning hours of 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. Sean responds with a, I have no idea who you're talking about. I don't know Amelia Henderson. Detective Bats knew that Sean was lying. He asks Sean if he would agree to a lie detector test. Sean agrees. And when the results come back, it proves that the tests are inconclusive. Detective Bass and the rest of the team wants to know further. They decide to pull up the CCTV footage and show the evidence to Sean Oliver. He confirms that it's him in the footage. He confirms that on Wednesday, July 16, 2014, around 9 p.m. that Wednesday night, that him and Mia had met at a local hotel in Baltimore on the northwest side. Detective Bats knew that that was true because Oliver's car is seen picking up Mia from where she was doing hair earlier that day. The license plate and all of that information matches to Sean Oliver. But does this prove that he murdered Mia? Well, the murder weapon, the knife, was never recovered. So to discover that DNA evidence would be unlikely. And Sean was not going to diverge that information. Even though he admitted that he picked up Mia, that they went to a local hotel and had sex the night of July 16, 2014, he admits that that morning he dropped her off and he never saw her again on the morning of July 17, 2014. So then who murdered Mia? According to Sean, he had no idea. Well, Detective Bats and the other team had heard enough. 
And on that Thursday, August 6th, 2015, in the Baltimore, um, Baltimore Police Department, 46-year-old Sean Oliver was charged with the second-degree murder of Mia Henderson. Sean sits in the Baltimore Police Department without bond for over a year. And he goes to trial on Thursday, January 13th, 2017, in the Baltimore courthouse. There, the his legal team, a legal aide and representative, court appointed, as well as the, the, the prosecutors all come together for this trial. The trial lasts for about two weeks. And th- during this two-week trial, you can hear both sides arguing that this was a romantic liaison gone wrong. According to the defense team for Sean Oliver, this included Allison Parks and her team who represented Sean Oliver. They all ultimately decided that Sean had sex with Mia the night of July 16, but he dropped her off and that they had no issues. Well, prosecutor Mark Polam of the Baltimore District Attorney's Office ultimately decided that that's not what happened. He argued that during the night and early morning hours of July 17, 2014, that Mia and Sean got into an argument. We know that Mia was not a sex worker, so there was no disagreement about any form of currency or sexual transaction and any disagreement regarding that. So then why did Sean commit such a hateful homicide to Mia? According to his defense team, he didn't. He had um, past relationships with other trans women. So Sean, according to himself and his team, was not transphobic and certainly was not the perpetrator in the murder of Mia Henderson. Allison Parks and her team told the jury, each and every one of them, that in order to truly convict Sean Oliver, they must have an ample amount of evidence. During the closing, Mark Polam argues that Sean Oliver is a ruthless murderer who took the life of this 26-year-old beautiful black trans woman in the prime of her life who had just moved here just a little over a year ago from Greensboro, North Carolina, and she loses her life. All for trusting someone that she was into, like so many trans individuals who are seeking love and affirmation and acceptance. Mia was no different. She sought out love and Sean seeked out comfort. And when these two came together on the night of July 16th and into the early morning hours of July 17th, some form of fatal attraction happened. And though we do not know exactly what catalyzed the murder of Mia, we do know that far too often these crimes go unsolved and they go undocumented. As the closing arguments occurred, 
both Poem and Parks conclude. The jury goes out and it takes about two days. On Monday, January 16th, 2017, the jury comes back and they find Sean Oliver not guilty of second-degree murder in the case of 26-year-old transgender woman Mia Henderson. So, why did they not find Mia's killer guilty? Well, according to one of the jury members, there was just not enough evidence to prove that Sean had murdered Mia. There was no evidence supporting that someone else could not have came and murdered Mia. The LGBTQ community and Mia's family was outraged. But that wasn't quite the end for Sean Oliver. He still was charged and sentenced to 10 years in prison for a drug possession. This was not in connection to Mia at all. This case was so tragic. And to this day, almost seven years later, there has still been no one officially charged and convicted for the murder for the hateful homicide of Mia Henderson. But I wanna take a moment now and shift gears and talk about who was Mia. Mia, born in 1987, she was a Southern belle, a Southern girl from North Carolina. She grew up with her siblings, Reggie and Kiosha and others. And during her journey, she discovered that she was transgender around the age of 15. Mia stood in her truth and overall had a very loving and supportive family. And though they were not the most affirming initially with her social transition in terms of her pronouns and using the name Mia, they still supported her. And when Mia made the decision, Mia who loved cosmetology, hair, makeup, socializing with friends, she loved great music, she loved R&B and hip hop, she was a big fan of Janet Jackson. So Mia was really, really active, not only in the LGBTQ community, but definitely for her trans community. Forming a close-knit community with her trans sisters and brothers and non-binary siblings, not only in North Carolina, but also in the Baltimore, Maryland community. In just such a short period of time, Mia had already become a rising star in the Baltimore community. So again, when she was murdered on July 17th, 2014, that community, along with the community in North Carolina, there was this Eastern Coast ripple effect of tragedy bestowed upon the trans community, feeling voiceless, feeling victimless, because there had already been just another murder. And unfortunately, just three years in 20, by 2017, there was no justice for Mia. And despite the fact that that happened, her family wanted to advocate and be a voice for Mia. And so what they decided to do was raise awareness in the case of Mia. So many times, 
these people, these victims, my community, the trans community, our community has no voice. But her brother, Reggie Bullock, decided to go into a life of activism and heroism on behalf of his sister, Mia. I got a call from a detective and my my little sister, and it was just telling me that Maya was gone. So I had to pretty much call back to Baltimore, um, talk to the detective uh, for them to identify the body and get a ship back to my family. But I was on the West Coast when it happened, and I just flew back east to be able to, you know, be there and support my family and and right away started planning for, for our death. Maya's relationship growing up, uh, it was very great. She used to actually beat me in basketball when I was younger. She used to literally be in the house all the time. She was a dancer, but when I was outside playing, uh, she would come outside, she would see me outside, beat me real fast, and go back in the house and be with my grandmother. But um, our relationship was great. Uh, I always supported her, uh, and she was just a great person too. It was a tough time for me, um, just knowing that, you know, my sister was like the backbone of my family, you know. Uh, I learned a lot of things from my sister, and my sister was the one that pretty much was my guardian walking around in the street while I was playing. So it was tough for me, but you know, I overcame it. I had a lot of support with family and friends and pretty much, you know, try to take some of that pain away. But like I said, I just used my, my voice, used my platform to try to stand up for causes that I believe in. I just wanted to voice my opinion. I wanted to, you know, stand up for my sister. I seen, you know, I was doing small little things inside of the LGBTQ community. And then that's why I just kind of like, I was like I said, I wasn't knowledgeable of it first coming into it, but over the last two, three years, I've been getting a lot of help and it's been going great. I get a lot of direct messages. I actually got a message uh, a couple a couple days ago. She was saying she was bisexual. She was scared to come out to her family members. Shortly, they wouldn't think that I would hit them back. I would just tell them like a way to possibly go about it. And you know, a lot of people do those different types of things. So I actually like respond back to them more personally on my own actual Instagram. It's been going good so far. I've been getting giving and giving um, great feedback from it uh, and a lot of people just can't believe they actually that I'm actually responding to them so it's been cool. She really lived in our true testimony. She was a real person. She was a dancer. She was a lover. She supported her family. She was a fighter and she loved God first. She, she would for sure be smiling ear to ear. I actually talked to our friends uh, maybe about a day or two ago and they were just, they were just telling me you know they in support of everything that I'm doing, standing up for. Um, my sister's name, uh, you know, and they just they just want to be a part of the ride too, you know. Uh, it was it was hard. It was a crowd that they formed. They protected each other, and they believed in everything she stood for. And they were just telling me how happy they are and proud of me of just standing up using my sister's name. And it's dope to actually, you know, still have her friends around. They love the work that I'm still going for. A close sister of theirs, and they love. Me. I got this uh, at the beginning of last season, uh, so it's LGBTQ. I need to get the plus down here. Uh, Maya Henderson, the day she was born, the day she died, 7 16, 14. That's my hand. This is my dad's name. The day he was born and died in the state of North Carolina, where I'm from. The NBA actually showed me a lot of love. The people out there showed me a lot of love. Um, I remember getting off the float and actually walking within the, like in the middle of the street. And I was just remember just being in Times Square area. Millions of people, hundreds of thousands of people all over. And you're seeing different signs, you're seeing different uh, wordings that people would say, you see all crazy stuff. And my son is there. I bring him with me just to be able to show, like, you know, that's 
to quality all over the world. Um, I just wanted to show them this, this is a community that my sister is a part of. This is what your father is doing, standing up, using it for your aunt. And just standing up for something that I 100% believe in. So I just wanted to just bring pure, pure love into his heart, put pure love into his heart, and just show him from a young age that everyone is equal. Reggie loved his sister. You can hear the sadness and tragedy in his voice, but you can also hear the strength and determination. Reggie, a member currently of the New York Nets NBA team, continues to advocate and fight for his sister. Mia was his big sister. And as you heard, he, you know, had so much respect for her and appreciated her love of God, her love of dance, her love for others. Mia's love sparked another agency, Free State Legal of Baltimore, Maryland. Mia's case, it catapulted them to do more advocacy work. And for those who are listening and who may ever need some type of legal support, Free State Legal is an organization in Baltimore and they basically advocate for the LGBT community. They work tirelessly with the Baltimore City Police Department to bring uh, you know, murder charges and convictions against perpetrators of the LGBTQ community. I wanted to provide that resource for you. When Reggie Bullock did this interview back in 2018, unfortunately, just a little over a year, another tragedy would bestow the Bullock and Henderson family. On October 13th, 2019, Reggie's younger sister, 22-year-old, Kiosha Moore, cisgendered, female, was found shot to death in Baltimore, Maryland, just a little over five years after the death of her older sister, Mia. That family has had so much tragedy placed upon them. As you heard in Reggie's interview, he's lost his older sister, Mia, his father, and now his younger sister, Kiosha. And despite all of that, the family continues to work tirelessly for LGBTQ and transgender rights. So much so that Reggie has worked with the Los Angeles Lakers, the New York Knicks, and so many others to make sure that there is reformative change in transgender competency. So Mia, you have continued to inspire those since your passing. And that's one of the things that I like to remind our community and our allies and advocates is that we are so much more than what society has told us that we are. I started this podcast in the hopes of raising awareness. So many times our transgender community members are victimless, I mean, are, are, are victims and who are voiceless. And I wanted to be able to provide a voice. 
And when I think about how each of these victims in some way have sparked a change and a reformative approach in each and every one of their areas, whether it's Mississippi or New York, and Mia's case done that, it continues to do that. The Free State Legal, Reggie, her mom, her grandmother, so many others come together each and every year to remember Mia. They go over to Garrison Boulevard in the Northwest Northwest Baltimore area. And there they go and they place those flowers and they have a tribute and they play Mia's favorite gospel song and they play her favorite R&B and Janet Jackson hits. And every year in October, on October 6th, they celebrate Mia's birthday. At the time of Mia's murder, she was just a little under three months before turning 27. And her close friends shared with me that they were planning her 27th birthday, that she was gonna have some friends and family come from Greensboro, and that she was really looking forward to the future. She had uh, began the process of registering for classes to begin the fall semester at a community college in Baltimore. Mia had also, um, you know, had spoken about Sean, about how she thought that he was a nice guy. He was older, more mature. She felt that he wasn't going to hurt her because of his age. And when we looked further into Sean Oliver, he has a history of violence. He has a history of viciously attacking cis and trans women. On the night of July 16th and into the early morning hours of July 17th, we know that an argument ensued. Whether it had to do with Mia's gender identity or whether it had to do with Mia realizing that Sean was not the guy she thought he was, nonetheless, an argument happened. And Sean, angered, fueled by rage, like so many other perpetrators in these cases, responded in such a way that led to the hateful homicide of Mia Henderson. Now, you may be wondering, how do we know that Sean is guilty? We don't. There is still a possibility that Mia's killer could be out there. Is it Sean? Is it someone else? In my personal opinion, I strongly believe, based on the evidence that I've looked over, based on the testimonies that I've heard and the people that I've spoken with regarding this case, the evidence pointed to Sean. And because he was found not guilty and he can never be charged again. And since he's been incarcerated, he's now serving 10 years and he's been currently, um, he'll, he'll be eligible for parole in 2023 for his drug charges. Again, not in relation to the murder of Mia, but one of his prison mates did reach out to the Baltimore City Police Department and had confessed that Sean had openly 
blatantly bragged about murdering Mia and how he had ultimately decided that her life should be over. When this cellmate asked Sean, why? Why did you kill Mia? According to the cellmate, Sean said, because I wanted to. This gives us a detailed insight into the mindset, the psychopathy into Sean Oliver. So many times these perpetrators, again, like we have heard, use the victim blaming. And when the cellmate even asked about Mia's gender identity being a role in this hateful homicide, Sean said no. That that had no factor in her murder. But it was just, he always wanted to know what it was like to kill. And Mia, this kind and loving, five foot six, petite trans woman, stood no chance against the six foot, 200 pound Sean Oliver. The two had sex at the hotel. And around 2 a.m., they leave the hotel And Sean is getting ready to take Mia home. And as he's taking her home, he realizes that he doesn't want Mia to live. He pulls over, states that there's something wrong with his car. He asks Mia to get out and help him. And as he does, he stabs her over five times in the upper and lower torso, leaving Mia to bleed to death between the hours of 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. And by 6.30 that morning on July 17, 2014, when the first witness discovered her bleeding in the alley, dead, Sean had already fleed the scene disposed of the knife and covered his tracks. It took over a year just for him to even be charged in the murder. And between that time, Sean had plenty of time to not only cover his his tracks, conceal the evidence, but he also had plenty of time to come up with the perfect alibi. So Much so that when it came to the lie detector test, he was able to trick it. He was able to deceive that test and make it inconclusive. And when they did a second test, it still came back inconclusive. And though Prosecutor Pullum did the best that he could in prosecuting the case to get justice for Mia Henderson, unfortunately, it was not enough. And now, in two years, Sean Oliver, now at this time almost in his 50s, will be walking free. And I encourage each and every one of my listeners, 
as this individual prepares to be released from the Baltimore State of Corrections for his drug charge in 2023. Please be careful. Please be weary of individuals like him. I caution you. Because if he can do it once, he will do it again. So many times we have seen, and this isn't just for victims of trans murders and trans homicides, but also victims of cis homicides. These perpetrators get released, they're reformed, quote unquote, and they get back out. And so many times, not often, but in some cases, repeat their offense. And I can't say for sure that Sean would repeat such a hateful homicide. But the odds and the fact that he just casually decided around two in the morning as he's taking Mia home that he wanted to kill her just because. If that is the mindset of this individual in 2014, I hardly doubt that it has changed and will change by 2023. As we prepare to conclude, I just want to say, my sister Mia Henderson, we remember you. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever, and always. Born October 6th, 1987, and died July 17th, 2014. Again, thank you all so much for taking the time to tune in and listen to this episode of A Hateful Homicide. My name is Mallory Jenna Robinson. You can follow me on Instagram at Mallory Jenna 90. That's M-A-L-L-E-R-Y-J-E-N-N-A-90. You can also follow A Hateful Homicide on IG at A Hateful Homicide. Please tune in on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You can do a search of A Hateful Homicide on Apple Podcasts and you can find us there. Use the hashtags A Hateful Homicide, Ah, Say Ah, Podcast, True Crime, Suspense, Saturdays. Oh, my listeners, thank you so much. We have just about three to four more episodes before we conclude the first season. And we'll be getting ready to pick back up again in the fall for season two in September. And as we prepare to get ready to conclude this season with a few more episodes, I just want to again, just thank each and every one of you for listening and tuning in and know that I appreciate your support with this. And there's still much more work to be done. Again, thank you for tuning in and stay tuned for next Saturday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Thank you and have a great day.